The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall... Run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. God the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us understand doctrine, and He's the one who stores doctrine in our soul. And if we're not in fellowship, then we are quenching, grieving the Holy Spirit. And God's plan for recovery that He's given us is 1 John 1.9. So we always take a few minutes to make sure we're in fellowship. And uh, 1 John 1.9 is not something to use only on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. But uh, every time we sin, we need to use it so we're back in fellowship, so we can be advancing spiritually. So we start with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in thy truth that we see truth, and we need to remember that we walk by faith and not by sight, and that it is your word that tells us how things are, and we must accurately understand your word in order to understand reality. It's not based on experience or reason, but it's ultimately based on what you have revealed to us. Now, Father, as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word this morning, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge that's there, that it might help us better understand things and, and think through the issues of life and develop wisdom in our soul from Bible doctrine so that we can apply that to every area of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning on Judges chapter 13, beginning with the birth of Samson. The birth of Samson, and in the process of looking at the birth of Samson, we're going to have to address, perhaps uh, for many evangelicals today, one of the most uh, controversial subjects that we can address. So maybe I'll get through with that this morning, but maybe we'll take two weeks. So that should wake everybody up once we get there. Judges chapter 13, we continue in the deterioration and decline of Israel during the period of the judges. They continuously go through this cycle of disobedience, divine discipline. Then they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer. I want to emphasize that order because we won't see that in Judges 13. For the first time, the nation doesn't cry out to God. There's no confession. Without confession, recognition of sin, there's no deliverance. Once you confess your sins, the discipline is either ceased, it diminishes, or God transfers it over into the category of suffering for blessing. But in the case of Israel, there is no deliverance at this point. Samson is not designed to be a deliverer. That's one of the interesting things about this character, is that he does not deliver the nation. Unlike the other judges, there is no deliverance. Samson is sort of like the burr under the Israelite saddle at this point. The tendency we're going to see in our study is to assimilate to the 
Philistines. They want peaceful coexistence. Sort of reminds me of a Chamberlain's statement, peace in our time before World War II. They just don't want to fight with the Philistines. They're adopting their culture, adopting their uh, religious system. And so God is going to send Samson there not to deliver them, but to just be a troublemaker. And everywhere Samson goes, even though most of the time he's out of fellowship and carnality and just doing whatever he wants to do, we see the marvelous working of the sovereignty of God using him to just stir up trouble. He just constantly is going to create friction between the Jews and the Philistines. And that's the last thing the Jews want. They just want peaceful coexistence. And so God is going to use uh, uh, Samson, basically, to try to stir up a war and so that Israel will finally uh, defeat the Philistines. But that does not come during the period of the, the uh, covered by the book of the Judges. It ends, really, it will end the period of the Judges under, under Samuel. But that's the beginning of 1 Samuel. It ends with the Battle of Mizpah in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And then 1 Samuel chapter 8, they ask for a king and get Saul. So that's the beginning of the monarchy. Now, we've gone through this gradual deterioration in Israel through each successive judge, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. And starting with Gideon, things really got bad. That With the last two major judges, Jephthah and Samson, they, they basically overlap one another. Samson's birth is about the time Jephthah begins to uh, deliver the nation from the Ammonite uh, oppression from the east. Uh, the Ammonites are coming in from the east. The Philistines are coming in from the from the west. Uh, Jephthah solves the eastern threat. Samson is going to be dealing with the western threat. So here's a chart that gives us an idea of the chronology of this period because when we read through the scriptures, it sounds as if these judges, just one is born and dies, and then the next one's born and dies, and it's like it's successive. And then with the distinction between Judges and Samuel as distinct books, we lose sight of the fact that the beginning chapters of Judges, I mean, of Samuel, actually overlap the period of the Judges. And beyond that, the book of Ruth takes place somewhere in the midst of this period of Judges. And that's the positive thing. We will get to Ruth. When we finish Judges, I think I'm going to go right into Ruth because Ruth is the optimism of God's grace, whereas Judges is the pessimism of human depravity. So Judges has very little positive to say other than God's grace is always there. No matter how much we mess up in life, no matter how badly we fail, God is always faithful uh, to us. So if we look at this chart here in terms of chronology, Jephthah is born approximately 1150 B.C. and dies approximately 1100 B.C. When he is 25 years of age, so he's, when he's still out in um, the land of Tob with his band of brigands before he... It, is uh, approached by the uh, Gileadites to deliver them, Samson's born. So when we start with Judges 13.1, we have to realize that this isn't a, a verse that follows chronologically on 12.15, but goes back in time about 25 years. So in 11.23, Samson is born. And at that time, we're also told that there's a 40-year uh, oppression. So uh, Samson is there from about 1123 to 1084. He does not live to see the deliverance from, from um, uh, the Philistines. Samuel's born just a few years after Samson. While Samuel, Samson is a young, young boy, Samuel is born. And Samuel is the one who will bring the nation deliverance. He's the last judge and the first prophet, and he's the first one to anoint a king. So Samuel becomes the transition point from judges to uh, kings, from the period of the judges to the period of the monarchy. The lower part of this chart shows the uh, two oppressions, the Ammonite oppression and the Philistine oppression, and they overlap one another, and that the Philistine oppression does not end until the Battle of Mizpah. So that's just a brief overview to help you tr 
put this together. Now, let's look at this first verse. Once again, we read, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the evil is always defined in context. This isn't just any sin. This isn't immorality. This isn't uh, lawlessness. It's defined in context again and again in Judges. It's idolatry. It is the worship of false gods. It is making something else the source of happiness in life, meaning in life. Idolatry doesn't have to be overt idolatry in the form of worshiping idols of stone and wood. Idolatry can be mental. It can be more abstract. We can worship our jobs. We can worship status. We can make any detail of life a higher priority than God, and at that point it becomes an idol. And we have succumbed to the same problem that Israel succumbed to. So evil in this passage is defined or throughout this period. In fact, we, you see that used this way over and over again, even in the period of the divided monarchy. When you get into those chapters and kings and chronicles, you read about the, the northern kings. And not one northern king was a good king. Not one king in Israel was a good king. And each king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And often you will find the statement that they followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who led them into idolatry. So evil, think in terms of evil as religious evil. It is not necessarily involving sin, although the idolatry they practiced was often associated with the phallic cult and was often associated with fertility worship and cultic prostitution and many other sexual perversions, but sometimes it, it wasn't. It wasn't always, or not every person was involved in the fertility cult. Some of them were involved in other aspects of idolatry. But evil is always defined here as religious, uh, as a religious decision against God. So it involves morality, it involves religious activity, but it is still defined as evil. So we're told the sons of Israel again, again and again and again, we've seen them go through this same cycle, that once again they do evil, they get involved in idolatry, and always the evil is not just some sort of abstract concept of evil. It's not a concept of evil that's based on relativism, but the writer of Judges always says it's evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that must be kept in mind that the evil inside of the Lord is in contrast to the theme of this book, and that is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the, the nation has succumbed to relativism just as our nation has succumbed to relativism, and we've lost sight of the fact that norms and standards come from God. They come from outside creation, outside of nature, that values are not based on a majority vote. They're not based on what works. Values are based on what God has said. He is the one who decrees what is right and what is wrong, and we don't look to something within the created order. Values, morals, ethics do not derive from rationalism and empiricism. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's not faith in faith. That's faith in the Scriptures. And when the Scriptures are more real to us than any experience, any feeling, any circumstance, any popular opinion or popular notion, that's when we're walking by means of faith. And that's so important, especially when we get to the second half of our study this morning. We have to learn to start with the Scriptures and not start with experience. There are some things that rationalism and empiricism can never tell us and will never tell us. And the only way we can know the answers to some questions is by going to the Word of God. So, once again, Israel succumbs to idolatry, and God disciplines them. The Lord is the subject of the uh, active verb. He gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So, Sam Samson will not survive that 40-year period, and he will not bring them deliverance. Now, we need to ask a question here when we come to this, because throughout this, the remainder of this book, at least the central section from 14 through the end of 16, we're going to be dealing with the Philistines. And who are these people? Remember, they're not defeated until the Battle of Mizpah, right before Saul becomes king in 1 Samuel 7. And then Saul still has problems with the Philistines, because you have the battle with Goliath. David has problems with the Philistines, and it's not until his 
uh, reign that the problem is pretty much squelched for the future of Israel. Now, there's a lot of talk about who the Philistines were. And to understand that, we're going to have to go back and look at a couple of passages in Scripture. Normally, the Philistines are referred to as the Greek Sea Peoples, but that's, that's a, almost a misrepresentation because that implies that they were Greek and they weren't Greek. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 10 to the Table of Nations. Now, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 are a couple of those chapters in the Bible that people like to uh, skip over. You know, they're the begats. They're the genealogies. Genesis 5, Genesis 11, 10 and 11. But some of the most fascinating material is embedded within those chapters, especially the Table of Nations. But it takes a tremendous amount of time and a tremendous library resource in order to really investigate this because this lays out the history of mankind. And all of the people groups, all of the tribes, all the nations that are mentioned in the, later on in the Bible are referred to by their family genealogical names laid down in Genesis 10 and 11. So in order to understand prophetic passages in, in Ezekiel and Isaiah, minor prophets, you have to understand the names of the players in Genesis chapter 10. It's sort of like getting your program when you go to the... Uh, ball game, you know who the players are and you learn what the numbers are so you can identify who's who and what the statistics are. So if you don't understand Genesis 10, you can really get lost in the rest of Scripture. Now let's look down at Genesis 10. Uh, let's start off at verse 6. We'll skip a few verses. This is an outline of the descendants of the three sons of Noah, three sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and he starts in verse 2 with describing the sons of Japheth. Now, the sons of Japheth are the uh, Indo-European descendants. The sons of Japheth are those who ultimately uh, live in Europe and uh, uh, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, and on into Russia and, and Europe. These are the Japhethites. Then, in verse 6, we have the sons of Ham described. Now, Ham had three sons, Cush, Mitzraim, Put, and Canaan. Now, Put is Libya. Just think about Muammar Gaddafi. And Canaan. Now, that's interesting. Look at the, the relationship. There is, a, there is a family tie between Cush, Mitzraim. Mitzraim is Egypt. Cush, Mitzraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush is Ethiopia. So these are all descendants from Ham. So they're, they're all cousins. Now skip down to 13, Mitzrayim. That's Egypt. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. And so Mitzrayim is going to be the ancestor of all of the Egyptians. Now Mitzrayim begot Ludim, the Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, and Kaslahim. Now, these are his sons. The Kaslahim, and then there's a parenthetical note from Moses, and he inserts the, the identifying statement, from whom came the Philistines and Kaftorim. Now, Kaftor was an ancient name for Crete. Crete's an island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. So this tells us that the Philistines and the Kaftorim have their genealogical root not in Japheth, not in the Greeks up in the north, but they have their their they are related to the Egyptians, and they therefore they are not Greeks. Often that misidentification is made. Later on in the scriptures, in Ezekiel 25, 15 through 16, and in Zephaniah 2, 4, and 5. Jeremiah 47.4, they are all mentioned as having uh, come from either Kareth or uh, Kaftor, which is our alternative names for Crete, so that identification stands. And then in Amos 9.7, in Amos 9.7, God makes the statement that he makes a comparison statement. He says, just as I brought the Jews out of Egypt, I brought the Philistines out of Kaftor. What does that mean? Well, we don't really know. It leaves open more questions than it answers. But it seems to suggest that just as Egypt was not the original home of the Jews, Kaftor is not the original home of the Philistines. 
So that means they came from somewhere else, probably Egypt, and then they went up to Kaptor in Greek where there's an intermingling with the Greeks, and then they eventually come over to the um, shore of the Mediterranean and establish colonies along the Mediterranean coast and establish a beachhead in the land of Canaan. So they, and then as time went by, there's this merger. There are more people that come down from, from um, either the Greeks who come down, they get out and they, they were developing uh, their navy and they established colonies in different places like in the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians are all related people. And those people came in and intermingled with the Philistines that originally established colonies along the coast of, of um, Canaan. Now let's look at the first major mention of the Philistines in the Old Testament. That's in Genesis 20. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham has some dealings with, uh, with the king of the Philistines, whose name is Abimelech. So right there we learn that, as we saw with Abimelech in Judges chapter 7, the son of Gideon, that Abimelech isn't just a personal name, but it was a Philistine title for king. So there was more going on when Gideon named his son Abimelech than we met on the surface. He's giving him a, a, a Philistine king, um, title of monarchy. Well, in Genesis 20, Abraham once again is trying to deal with a problem through human viewpoint problem-solving devices. And he's got a famine. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Gerar is a Philistine town at this time in the uh, southern part along the coast. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. So Abraham is trying to solve the famine problem by going to the Philistines and then lying, using deception. See, he's using all the human viewpoint problem-solving devices, and of course whenever we do that, and arrogance is in control of the soul which is always related to trying to solve problems on our own terms, eventually it's going to cause problems. And it did, especially for Abimelech. He went to sleep, and he had a dream. must have had onions for dinner that night, giving him bad dreams. Uh, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man because of this woman. So she... uh, uh, he has t- had taken Sarah into his harem and had not had sexual relations with her yet, and God warns him off that if you touch her, you're going to die. But, verse 4, Bimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Now, he calls God, not Yahweh, the, a title related to the Abrahamic covenant, but he calls him Elohim, which indicates that that. Abimelech has a knowledge of God, and his response in this section, and also his son's response when Isaac does the same thing. You know, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree, and in Genesis 26, uh, Isaac does the same thing, goes to the uh, Philistines during a time of famine, and lies about uh, Rebekah being his wife, and it's just a repetition of the same sin, and the same thing happens. And what we see here is that the Philistines at this time seem to be positive. They seem to understand something about the Abrahamic covenant, something about blessing God. They understand something about God. But by the time we see them in Exodus chapter 13, they are antagonistic. So negative volition sets in between Genesis 20 and 26 and Exodus chapter 23. So the only point I want to make is at this point in Genesis, they're not anti-Semitic. They're not against Israel. They're not hostile to Israel. In fact, they play a protective role, and they're responsive to God's mandate. By the time the Jews are coming out of Exodus, God says, well, I'm not going to take you the northern route up through the Philistines because then you'll probably get in a war, and I don't want you to turn around and go back to the Egyptians, so we'll go the southern route. So, But by Exodus, we see the national character has been hardened. What we know during this approximately 600-year period from about the Genesis 20 event took place about approximately 2000 B.C. The Exodus takes place in 1446 B.C. So in that 550-year period, the ethnic Philistines that began with in Gerar and with Abimelech 
changed. They are infiltrated by a number of Greek people, descendants of Japheth. And so it be, the Philistine culture becomes a melting pot. It becomes, oh, should I say the word, multicultural. And as they become multicultural, they begin to absorb everybody's religious systems. In fact, the three main gods that you see the Philistines have by the time you get into Samuel are uh, Dagon, uh, Baalzebul, and Ashtoreth. And those three names are all Semitic names, so they've got Semitic gods. They've, they've just assimilated everybody's religious system, and that's how they, they keep peace, and they've, they've blended the cultures together. In fact, uh, Goliath was not a native Philistine. He was, he was one of the Anakim, one of the descendants of the, of the giants, the Anakim and the Rephaim. So he is not an uh, ethnic Philistine. In fact, the ethnic Philistines had their purity wiped out by assimilation with various other groups. And that's why when you read the uh, archaeological discoveries with Ramses III, which takes place uh, approximately during the time of the Judges, I, every time I get into, and we've looked at this before, every time I get into Egyptian dates and, and the dates of modern Egyptology, I'm extremely skeptical of the way they've constructed things, and, and it's constantly in a state of flux. And I think that it's based on a, two or three false assumptions, and they don't take the biblical numbers and biblical dates uh, literally. And everything in ancient history almost hinges off of dates in Egyptology. Well, if those dates are wrong, then it affects everything you read in ancient history up to about 800 B.C. So always be careful when you start reading these things. But approximately during this time, the Egyptians uh, under Ramses III were fighting off the invasions of the Greek Sea Peoples. And in his uh, recordings of the people that really made up the Greek Sea Peoples, they weren't all Sea Peoples. Some of them were land-based. There apparently was a lot of movement, ethnic movement, people looking for land uh, during this period from about 900 B.C. to about uh, 1100 B.C., and in that time, you had the incursions of various groups that had uh, allied themselves together, and they're trying to push their way into Egypt. And so you see this, this amalgamation of people, and that affects their religious view. And the point I want to make about that is that this is exactly the kind of attitude that has taken over Israel. It's, it's a relativism. It's, it's that any god works. You know, sort of like the Navy guys say, any port in a storm. Well, any God works. Let's just find one that works. And if your God works, we'll worship him. If your God works, we'll worship him. But let's not offend anybody by talking about the fact that there is only one God. And remember, all religious systems that worship something other than God are based on idolatry, which is based on demonism. Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17 states that they made him jealous... With strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. They sacrificed to demons. That is is, uh, Moses saying that the sacrifices to Baal, the sacrifices to the Ashtarot, that's the plural form of the word, uh, were all to ultimately to demons. Demons lie behind all false religious systems, even false religious systems today, from Islam to um, the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Ultimately, that, they all come from demonism. So we are warned. Also, Psalm 96.5 states, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens contrasting God, Yahweh, with all of the gods of the peoples. Assimilation is always based on relativism, that there's nothing worth dying for. Everybody's right. Any religion works. They're all basically the same. So let's note a couple of principles. First of all, if anything is true, that me, I mean if anything can be true, then nothing is true. If anything can be true, then nothing is true. What I mean by that is if any system is true and they mutually contradict each other, then nothing is true. And that's one of the problems with multiculturalism and postmodernism is they want to make everybody's value system equally true. Well, if everything is true, 
then nothing is true. Second, if you won't fight for the truth, then you won't live for the truth. If you don't believe in something strongly enough to fight and die for it, then you don't believe in something strongly enough to really live for it. Third, if you have nothing that you will die for, then you don't have anything that you will live for. If you don't have anything that you will die for, then you don't have anything that you will live for. And this leads itself to a passive attitude that is self-serving. All you want to do is to be left alone, to have, as, as Francis Schaeffer warned in the late 70s, all you want to do is to be left alone, to have personal peace and a sense of security, and to do whatever you want to do, and eventually that house of cards will collapse, and that's where we are as a nation. We don't have anything worth fighting for. We've given up truth. We've given up any concept of truth, and we don't want to fight for that. So all we want to do is to be left alone to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, Israel had succumbed to that same type of relativism, and so they just wanted to peacefully coexist with the Philistines. They did not want to get involved in a conflict. They didn't want to have a war. They were beginning to adopt their gods. And we're going to see that Samson is a perfect illustration of the kind of attitude that characterized the nation as a whole. One principle to note, often a nation has leaders that reflect the strengths and weaknesses of that nation itself. We have to remember that in this kind of environment, the environment of relativism, that the relativist is always hostile to the person who believes in absolutes. It's always a battle. If you believe in absolutes, your very presence on the planet is an affront to the person who believes in that everything is relative. And they make it their personal agenda and their personal objective is to either change your mind or get rid of you because you are viewed as a hindrance to everything that they want to establish. Prior to this in Judges, we've seen that the subjugation of Israel was through military conquest. But this time through the Philistines, they're following a policy of alliance, a policy of friendly dialogue, peaceful coexistence, and so it's a much more subtle way to try to destroy Israel. Remember, behind all of this lies the strategy of Satan to destroy God's people so that God is not able to bring about that which he has promised and therefore to win in the angelic conflict. So that's the background in verse 1. And then in verse 2 we're told, and there was a certain man. So we're going to go from the problem. There's Something is missing in between verse 1 and verse 2, which we found in other statements about Israel's sin. And that is no mention of their uh, cry out for deliverance. So we see God's grace here in providing a solution, despite the fact that, that the people have not cried out. And this is tantamount in the Christian life. The fact that when you or I get in sin and get in extended carnality, God does not stop working. He just has to get our attention through divine discipline to get us back into fellowship. And this is what God is going to be doing in this situation. So he's of the family of the Danites. He is a descendant of Dan. His name is Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Now, Manoah, we know, that, it's interesting, we know the husband's name. And we don't know the wife's name. And that is to, it, to takes attention away from her and puts, her on, puts the attention completely on the son that is going to be born. And we see that she is a barren woman. And we studied the doctrine of barren women last week and saw that there were six barren women in Scripture. Now, somebody who's not here this morning came up to me afterwards and said, Well, there, there's a seventh one, Pastor, and that's the Shunammite woman that uh, Elisha prayed and she became pregnant. But if you look at the text with the Shunammite woman, it doesn't ever say she was barren. What it says is her husband was old and she had no children. The problem wasn't her barrenness. The problem was his age. And that makes a difference. And in the doctrine of the barren women, you have six barren women, and they're all, they all have a dead womb. And they are all types of Mary, who is the virgin who does not have an opened womb yet, 
And they are all types of how God is going to bring life where there is death. And they all portray how God can create life where there is no life. And that ultimately is a picture of regeneration. So in all of this, we are reminded of the grace of God. Now, in verse 3, suddenly, or excuse me, let's look at this map here and see where Dan is. Dan is located, their original tribal allotment is in the central, to the uh, west of the central highlands. Here's Benjamin here in Judah just to the south. And Benjamin and Ephraim cover the central highlands, and Dan was off to the, to the west side with a border along the Mediterranean. But what happened was this area right here, you don't see it on this map, but this area right here along the coastland is where the Philistines had carved out their territory by this time under five major cities. And so it was called the Pentapolis. Now, notice they don't have a king anymore like they did back in Genesis 20 and Genesis 26. So, obviously, some major cultural changes have taken place over the last uh, 800 or so years. The tribe of Dan, the tribe of Dan is located here, but they had uh, suffered so much territorial loss from the Philistines and cultural loss from assimilation of their religion that Dan eventually migrated to the north up here by Naphtali and took over as part of their inheritance this area to the north side of Israel. And Dan suffered spiritually during this time so that for the remainder of the history of Israel, Dan is always in apostasy. Dan is never a tribe that is known for their devotion to Yahweh. So Dan moves forward. So all of that is background. He's in the tribe of Dan, and we know that he's living, therefore, in an area where he's very close to the Philistines. In fact, we're going to see that he is, uh, they're living in a town that's just a couple of miles away from a Philistine um, outpost. And that's going to put him in very close contact with the Philistines and why it's so easy for Samson to get involved with, a, with the Philistine women. Now, suddenly in verse 3, the angel of the Lord appears to the woman. And we've studied the doctrine of the angel of the Lord, and we have seen that this is not a regular angel, but this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Look at various passages in the, uh, New, in the Old Testament reveal the fact that the angel of the Lord has conversations with Yahweh himself, which indicates it's a distinct personality from Yahweh. And yet, in many passages, the angel of the Lord, as we saw with Gideon in Judges chapter 6, that the angel of the Lord is worshipped as Yahweh and receives worship as Yahweh. So the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, appears to the woman. Now, if the man is the head of the house, we need to ask this question. I may not answer it for another week or so. Why is he appearing... To the woman. Throughout this whole chapter, we're going to find out the angel does not appear to the man at all. Always to the woman. Now, it's obvious the woman is more spiritually astute than the man is, but that's not the reason. If you, if you think that's the reason, then you're basically falling into the feminist camp and you've got the answer wrong. The reason the angel of the Lord is dealing directly with the woman and not with the head of the house is because he's dealing with the woman on the, in, in the arena of her specific God-delegated responsibility. And that is having children and propagating the species. That takes us over into 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul, Paul states that, that uh, women are not to teach or have authority over men, but they are saved. Now, that's not soteriological salvation, eternal salvation, but they are saved through childbearing. And that is the role that, that God has given to women in terms of being mothers and in terms of raising the next generation and all of that. So this is why the angel appears to the woman as he's dealing with the woman in her arena of responsibility. If he was dealing with leadership, if he was dealing with, with a ministry situation, then the angel would have appeared to um, the man. But the angel is going to deal directly with the woman because he's dealing with her arena of ministry and life responsibility. The angel says, Behold, now, <coughs> in the Hebrew, which is arrests her attention. She's probably not looking. All of a sudden, he, 
there's this man standing before her. She doesn't recognize the man as the angel of the Lord. There's just a man there who suddenly announces and grabs her attention with the opening line, Hine na, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive. And that's a wrong translation. It is not a Hebrew imperfect, continuing the, the uh, narrative style. It is a perfect tense of the verb, hara, and it should be translated, you have conceived. It's not a future tense. It is a past tense. The angel is announcing to her that she has already conceived. She is now pregnant. It says, you have conceived and you will give birth to a son. And the tense shifts when it comes to you will give birth. There we have a vav consecutive cal imperfect of the verb yalad, which means to give birth. Now, I want to make a point out of these two verbs here because it's very important to understand some of the things I'm going to say with reference to conception and birth in a few minutes. You have two words here. First, you have the verb hara. H-A-R-A-H. And that is a verb, V for verb, and it means to conceive. Then you have the second verb, yalad, Y-A-L-A-D. And that is a verb, and it means to give birth. Now, there is a noun form of hara, and it is herion. And Harion, H-A-R-E-Y-O-N, and it is a noun, and it should be translated conception or pregnant. However, there is no noun form of the verb yalad. Now, that's really important. It's very important to understand some, some crucial distinctions about the origin of human life. Now, we'll leave that on the overhead. We'll come back to that in a minute. So the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman said, Now you're barren, you haven't born any children, you, sh- you, you have conceived, and you will give birth to a son. And then verse 4 we read, I left out verse 4 on the overhead, Now therefore be careful not to drink wine, or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Now, we just have some wonderful words all through this. Wine is yayin, which is the normal word for an alcoholic fermented beverage deriving from grapes. And strong drink is the Hebrew word shakar. Shakar refers to barley beer. They didn't, it does not refer to uh, something that we would refer to as strong drink, like a distilled beverage, because you didn't have distilled beverages in the ancient world. The process of distillation wasn't invented until the 8th or 9th century A.D. So, shakar referred to barley, beer, mead, or ale. And so, he's told, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Now, she is told that. She is not to uh, drink wine, strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. And that last part is mentioned simply because they're so apostate now in Israel, they were violating all of the dietary laws. And then verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he, will, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now let's look at a passage in Numbers chapter 6 to understand what it meant to be a Nazarite. Nazarite derives from the Hebrew word Nazar, which means to make a vow. And vows were part of the Mosaic Law. They were voluntary and they were temporary. That's two things we must remember about this. It's voluntary and it's temporary. That means it was up to the individual's volition whether or not they made a vow. And it was not for a permanent situation, but was Temporary, And when it was over with, they had to make certain sacrifices to God to signify the end of that uh, vow period. Now, that, there are all kinds of different vows, but number six describes the vow of the Nazarite, which was a very special vow. 
and a vow that had a very visible presence so that people would know you were a Nazarite. And because of the visibility of it with the long hair, people would uh, know that you were living a special kind of life. It was very, just like most of the Mosaic Law, it's very physical and very visual. Verse 1 of number 6, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. Now, notice there's an expansion in number 6. It's not all the details aren't listed in in Judges 13, but they are in number 6. Not only were they not to drink wine or beer, they were not to drink or touch anything associated with the grape. They shall drink no vinegar, so you couldn't have any wine vinegar on your salad. They uh, couldn't have any vinegar made from wine or from, from ale or barley beer. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, no welches, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. Could not eat grapes at all. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. Why? We read in the Psalms that wine was given to man for the joy of his soul. And what this symbolizes is that this, man, this person who's taken a Nazarite vow is for the period of the vow demonstrating by his abstinence from wine that his joy comes from God and not from anything else. And so just to make sure there's no confusion over the issue, he has to stay away from anything produced by the grapevine. And then the second part of the vow... All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He doesn't cut his hair, and he is to let it just grow long and flowing and uh, all the way down to his ankles if necessary, but he doesn't cut his hair at all. And he shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. So it's temporary. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. In verse 6, all the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. Now, why is that? See, the long hair is to tell everybody, I'm a Nazarite. It's a visual expression. They wouldn't tell just because he was a teetotaler. They wouldn't know just because he never went around dead people. He never went to a funeral home. They would know by his hair. So that's the visual sign. Excuse me. And then he was not to go near a dead person. Why? Death is always a reminder of spiritual death and uncleanness in the Old Testament. That's why many of the animals that were forbidden to Israel, they made them ceremonially unclean because the animals were scavengers or they ate scavengers. And that meant that they were touched by death. And the whole point that God is making through this um, visual training aid is that death comes from sin, and I can't have anything to do with sin or its effects in my presence. I am a holy God, and you cannot come into my presence at all if there is the least taint of sin in your life. So he is not to go near a dead person. Verse 7, He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die. See, that's the most extreme situation. The most personal situation is when someone very close to you in your immediate family dies. It would be the normal thing is to grieve and go to the funeral. And what God is saying here is in the most extreme situation, he doesn't even go near a dead person, so there's no other reason possible for him to go near a dead person. For his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation of God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy. That means set apart from the Hebrew Kadash. He is set apart to the Lord. So, Samson is going to be a Nazarite, not voluntarily and not temporarily. His Nazarite vow is imposed by God, and he is set apart from conception. Now, this is a very interesting idea here because his physical life that has started in his mother's womb is going to be uh, separate to the Lord. Now, that brings up a lot of interesting questions about when life begins. And I want to start addressing that. We're not going to have time to get through the whole doctrine this morning, 
but I'll come back and finish it next time. Now, as we start this, I want just to give you a little caveat for some of you who haven't heard this before, is that one of the most controversial subjects today is the whole issue of abortion, the whole issue of Roe versus Wade, and there's a lot of heat and very little light, and there's a lot of emotion, and what the, the whole issue demands is a tremendous amount of objectivity. So listen to the whole thing, and if something causes you great consternation, then we can, uh, you can ask me about it later. Because the position that I will present to you is one that perhaps you haven't heard or considered before. But it is a standard position that has dominated the teaching of Christianity throughout the ages. The sad thing is, as a result of the 19, whatever, whatever it was, 73 decision on Roe v. Wade, I've, I've seen theologians flip-flop overnight on their exegesis of various passages simply because of what they thought were political ramifications or ethical ramifications, and nothing of the sort was true. It's amazing to me sometimes how superficial people are in their discussion of this whole area and how unwilling so many people are to even sit down and objectively, calmly evaluate the biblical evidence. Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. Our decisions are based not on empiricism or rationalism, but on what the Word of God says. In other words, what I'm saying is that science cannot... This is an important principle you need to get down. Science cannot, has not, and will not ever be able to tell us when a human soul is present in the fetus, period. What we do know from science is that uh, is a lot about fetal movement, about the uh, neurological response to external stimuli, neurological response to, to pain, but that does not tell us that there's a soul present. A soul is immaterial, and there is no physical, material uh, process or test that can ever tell us when the soul is present. Now, I'm going to give you my conclusion now, in case someone's not here next week. But my conclusion is there's no law of Scripture. Get this down. It's crucial. Nobody ever talks about this. There's not one single law of Scripture that God expects of the unbeliever that is not discernible on the basis of rationalism and empiricism. There is no law in the Mosaic Law addressed to believer and unbeliever, especially unbeliever, that is not discernible on the basis of rationalism and empiricism. In other words, when you look at the civil law in the Mosaic Law, all the commands, thou shalt not murder, laws related to slaves, laws related to criminals, laws related to thievery, all of those laws were present in almost every law code in the ancient world. It's obvious to most people on the basis of experience and reason that murder is wrong, thievery is wrong, lying is wrong, adultery is wrong, all of these things. But nowhere in the Mosaic Law or anywhere in the Scripture does God ever expect unbelievers to be accountable for something that they can't learn. And 1 Corinthians 2 12 to 14 makes it clear that the unbeliever, the natural man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if science cannot tell us when life actually begins, that is, when the soul is present in the fetus, then it is a fact that can only be discerned from revelation. Unbelievers cannot discern anything from revelation. Therefore, to make a national law based on something that is discerned only from revelation and is questioned by many throughout church history, that life begins, the full human life, soul life is present in the womb, is wrong. Because unbelievers can't learn that. They can't see that. They can't know that. They can't learn it on the basis of rationalism and empiricism. They can't understand it from Scripture. And nowhere does God ever expect unbelievers to be accountable for something they can't understand. Okay, that's the starting point. Let's look at what the Scripture says, because we see some of the key terminology in these verses. We see, for example, in verse 5, that he is to be a Nazarite to God, from the womb. And this is a prepositional phrase, and I'm going to add it to 
this already crowded overhead screen here. This is the phrase in the Hebrew. You have a preposition men plus a definite article ha plus the word for womb, beten. There are two words for, for womb, beten, and rechem, and this is the most common. Sometimes the, the uh, definite article is dropped out and the preposition men assimilates to the noun and it's just me beten. This noon, final noon here, uh, drops out. M-I-N, ha, H-A-B-E-T-E-N. Now, I'm going to drive some of you nuts here with a little grammatical analysis. This is crucial. Men is a preposition. In any prepositional clause, you have two elements. You have a preposition and you have a noun. You have two things. You have a preposition and you have a noun. Now, some would say that when you have the phrase me betten, that that means in the womb, and that relates to something going on inside the womb during pregnancy. But that preposition in is represented by the Greek letter b, and you don't have a babetan here, you have a mebetan from the womb. And from the womb, it's a local use of men, and it refers to that that comes out of the womb, outside the womb. Now, there are some that try to argue that this phrase, mebetan or menhabetan, is a Hebrew idiom for in the womb. Now, the reason you have, one reason you have an idiom in a language is because there is no literal way to express the thought. However, or what they try to make, make me bet and mean is, is from conception. They try to make it be an be a idiom for the phrase from conception. And they would argue here that he was to be a Nazarite to God from conception. But let's note a couple of things. She is told not to drink wine, not to touch a dead person. Why? Because you have conceived, and in verse 5 it's also a perfect tense of the verb, so it's you have conceived and will give birth to a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin. In other words, from birth, his volition's activated. He, his, being a Nazarite is related to your volition, and you can't be volitionally active. In the womb, I don't care what position you take on, on, on soul life in the womb. You can't be volitionally active in the womb. So that's obviously from outside the womb. But that's just one observation. Anyway, the argument I'm dealing with here is that is me betting an idiom for from conception. Now, let's go back to the two words I noticed earlier. I, I emphasized earlier. Hara, the verb hara, which means to conceive and the verb yalad, which means to give birth. In Hebrew, you have a noun, harion, which means conception or pregnant. You have to to have a prepositional phrase. You have to have a preposition plus a noun. So there is a linguistic tool available in Hebrew to say from conception. And that is men plus the noun harion if you want to say from conception. But if you want to say from birth, there is no noun in the Hebrew for the word birth. You have the verb yalad, but as I said earlier, there is no noun form of yalad. There is no way to say, to literally say from birth in Hebrew. Therefore, a Jew must resort to an idiom to express the concept of from birth. And the idiomatic expression is me betten, men ha betten, and it should be translated from birth. And the translators of the NIV consistently translate me betten from birth. Even when you get into the New Testament, the Greek, uh, which is ek uh, koilia, in Luke chapter 1, where it says that, that uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit. Ek koilia, they translate it from birth. 
And I, and I don't think that means little. I can't prove this. I don't know how to prove this. But the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems that people have who want to say that there's full soul life in the womb, and they always want to go to the Luke 1 passage that John the, Holy, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. That's what they'll argue. Is if that's true, or even if he's filled with the Holy Spirit literally from the instant of birth, you have a major theological problem of having somebody filled with the Spirit who has never accepted Christ as Savior. You have an unregenerate person being filled with the Spirit. And that's a major theological flaw in that entire argument that I'm telling you I have raised that again and again and again, and nobody will address it. And that has to be addressed if we're going to have a solid understanding of what goes on inside the womb. And if you're going to make a claim that there is full soul life in the womb, that's one of the arguments that's used, and that's got to be addressed. And I'm not going to have time to finish this this morning, but my main point here is there is a strong case that the soul is not present in the womb. It's a position called creationism. And it's been around since the early church, and that is that God creates each individual soul and instantaneously and simultaneously imparts it with the first breath of a newborn infant. That's called creationism. And it was a position held by such uh, renowned Roman Catholic theologians as Jerome and Thomas Aquinas. Also, among... Uh, Protestants, Luther held that position. Modern the- I mean, uh, ca- excuse me, Calvin held that position. Among modern theologians, you have uh, Reformed theologians such as Louis Burkhoff and Charles Hodge from the last century who held that position. It is has, has been a standard position among theologians for centuries since the early church. The reason I emphasize that is that doesn't make it right or wrong. But in today's environment, most evangelicals think that life begins at conception, and they've never heard this position. And yet, a hundred years ago, a Presbyterian theologian by the name of William G.T. Shedd in his Dogmatic Theology wrote, and he did not believe in creationism, but he wrote in his discussion that up to his point in time, the majority of theologians were creationists. Now, to say that the soul is not imparted until birth does not mean that abortion is automatically justified. But see, that's where everybody goes, and that's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Just because the soul is uh, not there, it, all that means is that abortion isn't murder. It doesn't mean you can just go out and frivolously have abortions. And that's immediately where people want to go, but that's a non sequitur. It doesn't have anything to do with the theological position. So I want to look at the details. We're not going to have time today. Next week we'll come back and go through a detailed study of the position, but I want you to understand where we're going with this. Number one, if you're going to make a law, and this is what, what so many conservatives want to do by making abortion a litmus test. They want to make a law outlawing abortion. What that says is that it is obvious on the basis of science that there's a soul there. But science can't measure anything immaterial. God never makes unbelievers accountable for that which is knowable only through Scripture. And only Scripture, no matter what position you take, only Scripture, only God can tell us when the soul is present. I mean, we have tremendous questions. We got in a discussion last night. What happens to the soul in somebody who has Alzheimer's? What happens to the soul of somebody who has serious brain defects? And how? What, what exactly is the connection between the soul and the brain? The brain is like the, the hardware on a computer, and the soul, so to speak, is the, the, the software that runs the hardware. That's backwards from the way it actually works on a computer. Computer, the hardware runs the software, but... But the software, which is our soul, runs the hardware. Well, what happens when there are all kinds of neurological glitches and sector bleeps and and disconnects and short circuits inside the brain? Well, the soul may be saying one thing, raise your left hand, the right hand goes up. And much, much worse. 
But what, what are those things? We don't know because science can't tell us what's going on with the soul and can't measure its presence. So that's only, these things are only discernible from God who speaks authoritatively about, about matters of the soul. And as we go through this study, at the very least, I hope that people will recognize that there is a very valid, exegetically based position that has been around since the uh, second, late 2nd, second, early 3rd century B.C., and that is that God creates and imparts the soul at birth. The other position is called traditionism, and that's the position that the soul is passed on through physical procreation. And that view was first promoted by a guy by the name of Tertullian. It was, it's called traditionism. And Tertullian lived in late 2nd, early 3rd century A.D. But what one little-known fact about Tertullian is he thought the soul was material. So he had the soul materially generated through procreation. But nobody goes there. Now, there are some minor change, uh, different positions on creationism, and we'll look at that next time. But and we'll go through a number of verses showing that the Scriptures always describe the parameters of life as being birth and death, that we have seen that Hebrew certainly has a, both a verb and a noun for conception, and yet again and again and again, when the Bible talks about the parameters of life, it's always from birth to death, it's never, ever from conception to death. And these are things that are continuously overlooked. People go to passages, Jeremiah, always call from my mother's womb. That's the same word, phrase we've seen here. It's not in the womb, it's from the womb. That phrase is talking about birth, not inside the womb. So we'll look at those passages and deal with that. And if there's any special questions you might have related to this whole uh, Doctrine, then you might mention that to me before next week, and I'll make sure I answer your question next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time. We know this is sometimes difficult for us to study some, uh, some doctrines. They may run counter to our experience, may run counter to our feelings, but yet we have to know that your word speaks objectively and clearly about every issue in life. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that is unsure about their eternal destiny and uncertain about eternal life, that you would make that both sure and certain with their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men. So right now, right where you sit, you can make this the issue of your eternal destiny. You can resolve it simply by believing that Jesus Christ died for you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've learned today, that they would give us some clear food for thought as we reflect upon the nature of reality as you have defined it. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.